Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. So welcome back, everybody, to Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. And we are here with the lovely, talented, and uh, fierce Garen Vorthman. She's been on our show a couple of times, and you will know her as one of the most influential lobbyists in Colorado. And although there, uh, it's an interesting title to be a lobbyist, in Colorado, it certainly means something a little bit different, I think, here than it does in other places. And so she's at the Capitol all the time, and she works uh, on a, so many rural issues. But uh, we've got the session opening up next week, so we thought we'd have a, a conversation about a bit of a preview. Last year we did this, Garen, so thanks for coming on again today. Welcome back. Uh, you were pretty spot on last year as far as what inter- what was going to be introduced, um, what uh, what we should, if we want to say look forward to. Um, last year run was... Run away from. Uh, run away <laughs> from, yes. Um, last year was um, pretty interesting. Um, a really quick, the biggest takeaways from last session and how that's getting you prepared for this session. Uh, Sure. And first off, I would like to thank you both for having me back to have this conversation. I look forward to it. Um, So thank you very, very much for the opportunity. And yeah, um, last year was a doozy. And this year um, is expected to be another doozy. Uh, Election years are often uh, a little bit different at at the Colorado General Assembly because election politics start playing a role in uh, legislation. Uh, Sometimes that means that messaging bills are introduced from both sides of the aisle uh, for election purposes. Uh, Both parties try to set the other party up with certain votes. You'll see a lot of um, amendments on bills like the uh, budget bill that we'll discuss halfway through the session um, that are largely political in nature. And then, you know, anything that might be able to be used in a campaign ad in the future, uh, they usually don't uh, avoid those opportunities to uh, create some of those issues. So, so, so for those of our listeners who um, are just not as familiar with the, um, with the arena as you are, can you give a quick example of what you mean by a messaging bill? Um, Sure. Um, Oftentimes we'll see issues like uh, abortion bills be introduced or sometimes gun bills, both pro-Second Amendment and also gun restriction bills uh, often are introduced in years like this. And there are times where we have those kind of bills that are introduced that are not necessarily a, a talking point bill. But those are examples of issues that are pretty partisan and voters are aware of and are easy to turn into sound bites for campaign commercials or campaign flyers in the future. So it's basically the wedge issues as we used to call them in DC. Yeah, yeah wedge issues is, a, is a probably a, a more appropriate uh, way to refer to them. Bigger the wedge, bigger the divide. Okay, so tell us about what we're going to be looking at this session. 
Sure. Um, and I will tell you that yesterday, uh, my left eyelid started twitching. And then I realized it was exactly a week before the General Assembly <laughs> is going to convene. And I thought, okay, that, that's probably not a coincidence. Probably um, not. And to that point, the <laughs> second general session of the 73rd General Assembly starts next Wednesday on January 12th. They will convene at 10 a.m. and swear in all of the legislators and then the leadership uh, will do their speeches. It's probably going to be a fairly light day in terms of anything officials getting done. They'll they'll introduce some of the little bills that are, they'll have to do some things that are um, clerical in nature to get the session rolling. And then bills will start being read across the desk late in the afternoon. And we'll start seeing all of the good ideas that we'll be debating over the next 120 days. So let me ask you really quick. Uh, I can't remember who said something about they're still discussing rules as far as masks and so on and so forth. What um, do you know what that's going to look like? Because this even Not, this past year, the lobbyists weren't there. They didn't let people right. in. There was this whole thing. What's that going to look like this year? Yeah, if you remember, last session started um, on the date that uh, had been established, but they only worked for three days and then they took the COVID break for a little over a month, I think. And then they reconvened in February. And so what that did was it did uh, push the session longer into the summer because they were allowed to keep all 120 days. And um, it allowed for the state to kind of get through an, an initial big uh, COVID case count and, and let things kind of even out a little bit. Right now, we do not anticipate that they're going to do that again. We have been told that their plan is to convene and work through um, straight through the 120 days. I know that they are very much cognizant of the current situation with the new variant that is increasing cases statewide. I think if they feel like it'll be safer to actually take a break, they will discuss that. But at this point, I don't think that they're intending to. And then we'll reevaluate if caseload tells them that it's probably wise to reevaluate. We don't know yet what the COVID protocol will be. Uh, we expect that by the end of this week. I do anticipate that they will probably require masks to be worn in the building and uh, probably encourage social distancing. Last year, they didn't allow lobbyists into the actual lobbies in front of each chamber. So I don't know if they're going to do that again this year or not. And then um, also they had the committee rooms were very spread out with the chairs. So we'll see what that protocol is. We do know that they are not encourage, they are encouraging groups to not do days at the Capitol this year because that bring usually brings in a lot of people, big crowds coming into the Capitol. They want to kind of keep the crowd small. They are not allowing people to reserve the larger committee rooms for some of those days at the Capitol where groups would come in and, and have legislators come talk to their group uh, kind of in a round robin fashion. They are not allowing that to happen this year. So we do know that those restrictions have been decided already. There's some pretty strict rules for the state of the state as well. Uh, I've gotten those yeah. a couple of times um, now. So there's going to be some pretty strict ones on that. Yep. And the state of the state, Governor Polis will present that on uh, Thursday, the 13th at 11 a.m. Uh, for those of you who are interested in uh, listening into it, you can listen online through the General Assembly's website 
or you can watch it on the Colorado channel, both online or if you have cable, it's um, accessible that way. Okay, cool. All right, let's talk about potential legislation this year. Okay. Um, First off, I was going to just briefly talk about who is at the Capitol this year, um, being that it's halfway through the uh, session for the two-year cycle. There are no changes in leadership this year uh, in the Senate. Um, Your local Senate President, Leroy Garcia, will remain in that post, and Senate Majority Leader is Steve Fenberg. On the Republican side, it continues to be uh, Chris Holbert as minority leader and John Cook as assistant minority leader. And the same goes for the House. Uh, No leadership changes are expected there either. Uh, Representative Alec Garnett is the current Speaker of the House. And uh, Representative Daniela Escar, also from Pueblo, is the majority leader. And on the Republican side, we have Hugh McKean as the minority leader and Tim Geithner, who hails from the Colorado Springs area, as the assistant minority leader. So that the leadership structure remains the same. We have not seen any committee assignments released yet, but we don't anticipate that there's going to be significant changes. We do know that there are some uh, expected changes on from one legislator in the Senate. Senator Jesse Danielson um, had a baby boy in December, so she is on maternity leave. And so we expect that there will be different people filling in for her on her committee assignments. And then also in the House, Representative Dominique Jackson was recently appointed to a federal post. And so she resigned her House seat and there will be a new person who will take over representing representing that House district. That uh, process takes place on Monday. And so once that new person is known, they will maybe make a few changes to some of the committee changes or committees um, in the house to accommodate that new person. But other than that, we don't anticipate very big changes in the committee makeups from uh, last year. (laughs) Karen's got her, her sweet little dog. They got a puppy for the, their girls for um, Christmas and the, the puppy is in charge. Yes. Yes. Puppy just woke up. So (laughs) I'm, I'm hoping that he gets diverted really fast. So anyway. It'll be, it's fine. All right. So legislation. So, um, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so legislative priorities, the issues that we're going to be talking about. I think the budget is really going to take a lot of focus this year. Uh, we are... We do have a significant amount of federal dollars that have come into the state through pandemic relief that they are currently working through trying to figure out how to spend. And then uh, the revenue coming into the state, our, our state budget situation is looking quite good, quite frankly, in spite of uh, COVID and the pandemic creating some economic chaos and some upheaval in the communities. Um, revenues into the state have been very strong and we have completely bounced back from a couple years ago where we had to cut more than $3 billion from the state budget in order to um, protect uh, the the basics of the budget due to the initial uh, ramifications of the COVID pandemic. So um, they bottom line, they have a lot of money to spend. They do have the constraints of Tabor though, that are in place that limit how much of that revenue the General Assembly will be able to keep and spend. So 
right now, uh, the ongoing economic and jobs recovery from will increase general fund revenue collections by approximately 11.7%. So that's really, really good. Um, and that's above uh, last year's levels. And right now, without any changes that will obviously be made by the JBC and voted on by the General Assembly, right now, the general fund is projected to end the year with a 28.4% reserve, which is a little under $2 billion above the required 13.4% reserve. So that's really good. We're, our reserves are looking really, really strong and that, that's nice to have, um, especially in light of COVID. However, revenue that is subject to the Tabor cap and uh, will have to be refunded is anticipated to be just under $2 billion. So that's a lot of money that just came into the state that now will have to be refunded. So Um, that's always an interesting dynamic when, especially with uh, that amount of money, you know, everybody's going to want a refund and the legislature's not really going to want to let that go. How has that worked in the past? So this budget cycle, they pretty much have their hands tied um, on being able to prevent those, uh, that refund mechanism from kicking in. But they will be looking to try to uh, avoid hitting that Tabor cap in out budget years. So to do that, legislators will likely be looking at extending or expanding current tax credit or exemption programs. They might be looking at new tax credit or exemption programs. And they also will be uh, looking for ways to not to, to change how that revenue is coming in and alter it from being a direct dollar for dollar into the general fund that ends up having to be a dollar for dollar refund. But for this year, there is a a process established to provide for the refunds. The first round is... I'm not sure I understand. Ooh, I don't know who's talking to me. Hmm, Sorry about that. Nobody understands Tabor. That's fair. (laughs) Nobody understands it. Well, and one question I have um, for some of our listeners that don't quite grasp how the state is funded and where this money comes from. So with the surplus of money or extra money that they have now, where did this come from? Is this all tax revenue? Is this federal money? Um, where does it originate and how does it get to the state? Most of the tax revenue that we're, we're talking about in this situation comes from income tax revenue collection. There is a little bit of uh, federal money also that comes in that is separate from the federal yeah. pandemic relief that comes in. And then the other major source of revenue into the state are cash funds from fee programs, uh, things like hunting licenses and uh, those kind of programs. Those are typically separate from the state budget. However, if they're a cash funded program, oftentimes they are not part of this general fund and not subject to the Tabor cap and refund. Uh, So most of the revenue that we're talking about is income tax revenue. Okay. And, and that, that was uh, my next question you just answered is what is subject to the Tabor versus what is not. Um, right. and, and surprisingly, I think the um, like hunting and fishing licenses actually went up during COVID because people they could did. go outdoors. And, and that was one that I know f- we were worried about at the beginning of COVID. Would that impact that? Would people not go fishing, not go to the woods to go hunting? But 
the opposite happened. Thank goodness. Right. And the revenue that comes in through hunting and fishing licenses is put into what's called an enterprise fund. And that's what the d- division or the, yeah, the division of parks and wildlife is, is called an enterprise fund. And so the money that is paid for, for those licenses can only be spent for purposes established by that, uh, that enterprise. And so they're for parks and recreation and hunting and fishing and those kind of programs. They cannot be diverted for, let's say, K through 12 education or any other kind of project. Um, And there, if you remember last year, there was a significant bill that was passed that increased transportation funding through a variety of different fees. Those two were put into different enterprise funds. So they were protected from being swept into other purposes that were not transportation related. And that also was also a Tabor ploy because if you called it a fee, they didn't have to go to the voters to get it approved. But those fees will go into those respective enterprise funds and then only be spent on the transportation related programs and projects that those funds were established for. So again, those can't be swept into the general fund to pay for other issues. And enterprise funds was my third question. So thank you for answering that in advance. Wow. (laughs) You're very welcome. So back to how the Tabor refunds are done. The first round of refunds are the state reimburses local governments for senior and veteran property tax exemptions. So that's the first round of money that goes out. If there's money left over, which we fully expect that there will be, the second round is a temporary income tax reduction statewide for all income taxpayers. And then if there's money still left after that income tax reduction is put into place, all remaining money goes out through a sales tax refund. So it's kind of complicated how it all gets done. And um, there's not a direct check that people will get in the mail. They'll oftentimes talk about, oh, each taxpayer will get $16. Well, yeah, but it's not necessarily directly to your uh, mailbox. It's done through those three different buckets. So if we can make it more complicated, I'm sure we could. Yeah. (laughs) And will, as soon as we figure out how to make it more complicated. Well, that's what we're doing right now too, currently. Yeah, no, seriously, (laughs) seriously on that. Um, Thanks. It's, And we say it a lot, but uh, it bears repeating that no other state in the union has a taxpayer bill of rights or does their um, fiscal policy like Colorado does. And so even with the money coming in from the federal government, all the stimulus, whatever, um, it still has to go through the Colorado process, and it's not something that anybody else in the country is doing right now. That's part of the reason it's a little more complicated and why there's going to be so much time devoted to the budget this year, right? I think that's true too. And we also have a fairly unique situation. Um, our state contra- constitution requires the General Assembly to pass a balanced budget every year. So that's not what happens on the federal government level. And you'll see lots of um, fights over extending this year's budget and, and those kind of things because they don't have the requirement to do one every year. Uh, but Colorado does. And so that's why the Joint Budget Committee is so powerful because they have a, a big job to do every single year to pass a budget. The governor plays a big role in that. He presented his governor's, uh, his his budget proposal, the first um 
His first attempt at that was issued in December. Uh, just this last week, he provided uh, some amendments to what his proposal is. And that is where he is trying to prioritize where the uh, where he thinks the budget needs to focus. The Joint Budget Committee just has to look at that as a recommendation. They do not have to take his budget and just pass it. But, you know, him being the governor and the Democrats being in, in power, I do think that there's going to be a lot of his budget priorities are also going to be the legislative leader, leadership priorities. And so we'll see a lot of what he proposed get pushed forward through the General Assembly's budget. Um, he also made recommendations on how some of this federal stimulus money is coming in, how it should be spent. There, last year, they created two different task forces that have been meeting all summer and fall to talk about how to spend this money. One task force was uh, focused on affordable housing. So we're going to see a lot of proposals to deal with affordable housing uh, issues, tax credits for developers to get more affordable housing units built, um, rental assistance programs, those kind of things. The second task force was focused on uh, behavioral health. And as you all know, uh, mental health and behavioral health is such a big issue in Colorado these days. And the pandemic has just kind of shown a light on how big of an issue and how much need is out there. So a significant amount of the federal money is going to go towards behavioral health programs as well. And then there's a, another bucket, I'll call it, of federal money that the General Assembly will debate on how to spend that. And there's proposals ranging from everything to uh, more transportation money for more transportation projects. Uh, water infrastructure projects are also on the list. Uh, doing some education programming, uh, both for K through 12, as well as paying for the governor's uh, full day preschool proposal that he uh, passed a couple years ago. So there's a lot that will also be debated and dispersed through uh, that process as well. So as so, we, like I said, budget, budget, budget. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as we get into the upcoming legislation or possible legislation, um, one thing I wanted to ask that a few people around here in the community were wondering, um, have you seen anything in the way of money funding or programs going towards opioid abuse at mm -hmm. all? Yeah, there is, has been a, a interim committee that's been meeting over the last couple years, maybe even three or four years that has been dedicated to that very issue. And so they've, slowly been creating more programs. Uh, a lot of those programs have been slow in actually getting fully implemented because of lack of funding. But with the federal money that's come in over the last couple of years, we've been able to uh, put some of those programs into place with more coming online in the next couple of years. Okay, good. That, that kind of got overshadowed by COVID. You know, we were full steam ahead on the opioid crisis and then COVID hit. And it seems like people kind of forgot about it a little bit but it's worse now than it's ever been the past two years due to COVID and other factors as well. So that's, that's important in our neck of the woods down here. Yeah, it really is. Um, so beyond the, but, Oh wait, really quick. Will you remind us who's on the JBC this, this year? Yeah. Um, the chair, hold on, let me pull it up. The chair of the joint budget committee this year, is uh, Representative um, 
Julie McCluskey, and she is a Democrat from uh, the ski area, Summit County. Mm-hmm. Uh, Senator Dominic Moreno is the vice chair. They switch back and forth between the House and Senate on who chairs the JBC this every year. So last year he was chair, this year he's vice chair, and he's a Democrat from Commerce City. Then the rest of the committee is made up of Senator Chris Hansen, Democrat from Denver, Representative Leslie Harrod, also a Democrat from Denver, Senator Bob Rankin, who's a Republican from Carbondale, and finally, Representative Kim Ransom, who is a Republican from uh, the Parker area. Okay, so that's going to be really interesting to watch um, as we go through all of that. Okay, so besides the budget, there's a whole, there's lots and lots and lots, truckloads of stuff that we're going to be expecting. That's right. Um, I thought I would start a little bit with some of like the employment related issues and business related issues. And right now, we don't have a lot of detail on a lot of these proposals. Some of these are literally just legislative rumors that I've put down as likely issues. And some of them, there have been some extensive conversations on some of these as well. So it's kind of a mixed bag on how much information and how much detail we know at this point. But for employment-related issues, uh, we are going to see a repeat of Senate Bill 176 from last year. It's called the Power Act, and that's Protecting Opportunities and Workers' Rights Act. It's a discrimination bill, Mm -hmm. really, uh, to uh, update and try to make significant changes to our discrimination employment law. Last year, it was very uh, controversial. It passed out of the Senate, but died in the House committee. So um, already it's coming out of the gate being controversial as well this year. Other employment issues, we do expect uh, collective bargaining for a public employee bill to be introduced. That's something that uh, Representative Dania Eskar, or Majority Leader Eskar, has been working on for the last few years. Uh, Last year, she had a draft concept that she had discussed, but it never really moved forward. um, And she pulled it back to have significant conversations this summer. Um, But we do expect that she will introduce that bill this year. And that's going to impact uh, public employees, both in governmental and um, quasi-governmental situations. So school districts, uh, special districts, uh, cities and counties, uh, government-run hospitals. um, Those are just some uh, universities. Those are just some of the uh, entities that will be impacted by this legislation. The unemployment trust fund is uh, a big issue. And this is actually one of the areas that's a a, a pro, uh, that there's a lot of cooperation going on. Um, Because of the pandemic and so many people had to uh, get unemployment, our trust fund balance was severely depleted and we had to start taking uh, loans from the federal government to continue to pay out those unemployment claims. That's common in t- times of economic uh, upheaval. So it's not like this was, un- we, we expected this was going to happen. But the problem is now is the trust fund currently has about a billion dollar deficit. And if we don't pay that back or lower that deficit, then employers are going to see their um, the money that they have to pay into the unemployment fund increase. 
and it could increase significantly. Um, if the state doesn't backfill the, the deficit, the premiums will increase anywhere from 0.7% to 0.07% to 13% wow. premium increase. So that's significant. Governor Polis has recognized that this is a big deal. And in order to make sure that our employers aren't saddled with that big of a premium increase, he has uh, suggested in his budget request that they transfer $600 million into that fund to lower that deficit quite significantly. And I think that there is um, quite a bit of support for doing that. The final dollar amount probably will be debated at the end of the day, but I, I do expect that there will be significant legislative investment into that fund to make sure that those premium increases, if they have to be implemented, are as low as possible. 13%. So that's a lot. Yeah, 13% oh increase. That that would be really hard for probably most of our employers. So yeah. we're really hopeful that we can get that deficit lowered. Um, there's other workers' comp-related bills, uh, one to allow for the, the worker to choose their own doctor versus um, having a list that's more chosen by the employer, um, increasing the compensation to include f- funeral benefits, and then changing or updating workplace notice requirements. So those are some workplace or workers' comp issues that we anticipate coming. There has been a lot of conversation about potential changes to how independent contractors are classified. Back in California for the last few years, there's been a big change in providing more benefits to independent contractors that are more in line with what standard employees get. So retirement benefits, health benefits, those kind of things. Um, There has been a lot of conversation in Colorado about whether or not to kind of follow down the path of California, although we haven't seen anything specific. So right now, I'm kind of thinking that that there's probably not going to be a huge overall shift in independent contractor law, but I think it's something that we're going to have to be prepared to have a conversation around the edges on. So that's pretty much it on employment related issues and and those kind of business atmosphere issues. Uh, The next thing I was going to talk about were uh, energy and environmental issues. As you guys are both aware, the, um, we have significant issues when it comes to environmental policy and energy policy. Uh, So this year is going to be more of the same. We do anticipate there's going to be significant air quality bills, ozone and greenhouse gas emission reduction to further the state's plan on trying to address air quality concerns and further reduce greenhouse gas emissions. To that end, we know that there is an employee trip reduction program that is being discussed right now. And originally that was proposed as a rule, as a regulation through the Department of Transportation and the uh, Department of Public Health and Environment. They proposed this as a rule back um, at the beginning of the summer was when the heavy debate occurred. And what it was doing was trying to incentivize employees from driving from not driving their personal vehicles to work. So working with employers to provide uh, drive share programs, carpooling programs, incentives to get employees to ride the bus or other mass transportation um, 
the light rail, those kind of things, and really encourage employees to not drive their individual vehicles to reduce the emissions that are coming from our transportation sector. As you can imagine, that that was met with significant backlash from the business community. And the business community was successful in getting that regulation pulled from consideration and it did not move forward. Having said that, there has been conversations the rest of the summer on maybe doing it legislatively. It sounds like right now it might be a much more focused proposal. And instead of, of targeting all businesses and all employees, it might just be smaller with just focusing on state employees and trying to do more of a pilot program approach to see how that works. But that's an effort to try to reduce the emissions coming from the transportation sector. Um, we also anticipate there's going to be a lot of conversation on electrification of buildings. So moving away from natural gas, heating, air conditioning, and appliances more towards electric appliances and electric heating and cooling. Um, there is a proposal being discussed to create a statewide building code. And that kind of has two fronts to it. One is to try to do more uh, electricity, electric um, utilization for their, uh, for the stuff in the new houses, new builds going forward, but also to maybe have a statewide building code to address wildfire issues. Um, this is something that the state has been looking at for a couple of years. We do not have a statewide building code. We, we're a local control state. We allow our local governments to create their own building codes that are appropriate for their own localities. But what that's meant is we have lost out on getting some federal grants to help address wildfire issues, both in mitigation and trying to rebuild after a wildfire happens. So as you could imagine with the devastating fires that just happened in Boulder County at, right at the end of last year, that's going to be a significant conversation on whether or not we need to do a statewide building code for fire, wildfire issues. Um, we know that there's a likely going to be pesticide preemption bill introduced. Uh, right now in Colorado, uh, the state has primacy over pesticide regulation. So local governments cannot have a different set of regulation when it comes to pesticides. Only the state can regulate pesticides. And that's across the board for commercial use on farms and down to the personal use that you might go get a pesticide from your local hardware store and use in your own personal garden. Um, the state has purview over that. There's going to be a bill to allow for local governments to have their own level of uh, pesticide regulation, very similar to what we saw a few years ago with oil and gas. And then after that, we saw the plastics ban, allowing local governments to have their own plastic uh, regulation on the local level. So this is just kind of along those same lines. And um, water is going to be a big topic of conversation this year. Uh, we have a couple bills that came out of the interim water committee that were debated this summer and that will be introduced. One is a, a bill to try to address investment speculation when it comes to ownership of water rights. And in Colorado, we are under the prior appropriations doctrine, which means that in order to use water, you have to have a water right. It's done through a system of priority. So the older your right is, the more senior it is, and the more protected it is in times of drought, like we're currently facing in a lot of the state. 
Uh, what that also does is you can transfer water rights between uses and, and that's done as a private property right. And so we have anti-speculation is a very big deal when you have a system like that, like we do for Colorado water. Uh, you don't want somebody to buy a water right and then sit on it with the hopes that they can then sell it in five years for or longer period of time for a significant amount of money you want that water to be put to beneficial use. So we have a lot of rules in place that require people who own a water right to have to put it to beneficial use. And that can be agriculture, it can be industrial, it can be recreation. So there's a lot of different ways you can use that water. You just can't sit on it. Um, there has been some concern that there's been some out-of-state investment companies who have come in and purchased agricultural operations and farms and with the goal to hold that water and then ultimately sell it. We're, we're seeing increased demand from municipalities as they grow, especially along the front range, but also on the Western slope. And then also we have a significant issue with meeting our compact obligations. And so the, the fear is that these investment groups are coming in, buying that water, and then going to turn it around just for investment purposes. There's a lot of debate as to whether or not our current speculation law is strong enough uh, I think a lot of the water community believes that it is. And there was a task force that the legislature created a couple of years ago that looked at this issue and looked at um, if we needed to update our speculation laws. And they came back and said, no, we do not. But there's this bill now to talk about investment speculation. So anticipate that to be a pretty big conversation because it, it's very nuanced and complicated. Uh, Garen, um, let me just say, I've, Sure. We, there's not a day that goes by that we don't end up talking about water right now. You just laid it out in the most succinct, succinct and understandable way I've heard it so far. <laughs> just well, good. It's, <laughs> it's a tough, tough layered and nobody understands it. Um, and trying to wrap our brain around it or anybody to wrap our brain around it. And uh, the expectation that's going to be put on this legislature with regard to water not just this year, but for the next several years is going to be tremendous. And I'm desperately worried that um, the lack of understanding about it is going to play a significant role in how those decisions are made. Yeah. I, and, you know, we have some really, really strong water leaders or, or some legislators who have extensive knowledge in water. We've got um, down in, in the southern part of the state, you've got Cleve Simpson, who has made... He, he, he's one of the most knowledgeable people at the Capitol on water. Right. Senator Jerry Sonnenberg is another one. He is a farmer from Sterling and he has dealt with water for decades. Um, so, you know, we do have some people who are able to explain it in a good, sensible way. And we just hope that we're, we have those opportunities to be able to continue to have that education opportunity. So... We hope so. We're going to do everything we can on this end to do that. But that was a really well done job, Karen. <laughs> well, thank you. Explaining um, I, I, I kind of am a water nerd, so I can keep talking about it forever. Good. Um, the other water bill that I wanted to mention, because it does heavily impact the southern part of the state, is a, another bill that came through the interim committee that's sponsored, that was being pushed by Senator Cleve Simpson. And it's a bill to provide funding to retire irrigation wells in the Republican River Basin up in northeastern Colorado and in the Rio Grande Basin down in the San Luis Valley. Um, both those basins are under 
requirements to retire a certain number of irrigated acreage, uh, in part to to meet compa interstate compact requirements and send the water that we're supposed to send to downstream states. But also, especially in the Rio Grande Basin, um, it is an aquifer-based system and the aquifer was getting severely depleted. And there are requirements from the state to build back that aquifer and, and build that reservoir underneath the ground back up. The farmers down in that uh, area have banded together and had been working towards trying to uh, meet those goals and had been making some strides in rebuilding that aquifer and then intense drought hit and we kind of lost some ground with rebuilding and, and refilling that aquifer. So now we're really getting close to the point where the state is going to have to come in and forcefully shut down irrigation wells. And the purpose of this bill is to provide some funding and some compensation to those farmers to and to incentivize them in both basins to retire those wells and move away from those irrigated crops in order to avoid being forcefully shut down and not get any compensation. So that's going to be an important conversation. And I hope uh, that we see some, uh, some relief through that. And I hope we see some success. Um, moving on to taxes, if I can get any more complicated, <laughs> I did employment law and I went to water, water and now, now let's taxes. talk about taxes. Yes. Uh, property tax discussion, what's next after Gallagher is going to be a conversation. As you know, the voters a couple of years ago repealed Gallagher which was a property tax uh, provision in our state constitution. What do we do now on, on making sure that our property taxes remain reasonable, but also maintain a, a, a strong funding source for our local governments? Because that's largely what funds our um, public school system mm -hmm. between state dollars and local property tax dollars. So that's a, a delicate balance that we're still trying to figure out how to have. We know that there, there's an interim committee that works on looking at our tax credit and expenditure. Those are tax credits and um, refund programs that have been in place for a lot of them for decades. Uh, there's an interim committee that meets every year that reviews those programs to make sure that they are still meeting the legislative intent. Are they still good policy for the state? And they go through every single one of them on a rotating basis. So um, that committee has their report out and we'll see if legislators pick up some of those issues um, to move forward with. And a lot of those are uh, either repealing tax credits that are no longer in use or nobody's actually applying for, or maybe expanding them to make sure that they are meeting the intended pur purpose that um, was initially established when that credit program was put into place. So we'll see how those those conversations go. And that's going to play directly into that long-term TABOR refund conversation that we talked about earlier. Um, mill levy override matching fund is a conversation that the interim school finance committee has been talking about. Um, since school funding K through 12 is largely funded through property tax, it's kind of uneven depending on where you are at in the state and, and what your property tax is. And if there is a mill levy in your local area, 
And so what that means is it's the state has disproportionately having to backfill the local school budgets, depending on where they're at. And it's complicated and it's uh, many argue that it's very unfair to students who live in different districts. And so there is a conversation about a mill levy override matching fund to be created to allow the General Assembly to kind of try to make those uh, areas a little bit more even. And I think we expect that there's going to be continued conversation about income tax. The governor's made it pretty clear that he would like to abolish the income tax. Obviously, that is a really big, heavy lift, and I don't mean to assume that he's going to introduce legislation to do that, but that is going to be an underlying conversation, and there is a ballot initiative that has already been approved for the next ballot cycle to further reduce the income tax. So that's playing into the conversations as well, uh, both on the state budget, Tabor, and what is an equitable and fair tax policy in Colorado. That's going to be a fun conversation. Um, we, it's not the first time we've heard this, but, uh, you know, everybody is very passionate about the income tax. So we'll see what that, mm -hmm. what that does. Anything very much else? so. Anything else on the tax side? Um, on tax side, uh, we expect that there's going to be conversation on how to tax short-term rentals, mm. rentals like Air, Airbnb, VRBO, those kind of things. Uh, simplifying the local sales and use tax is always a topic of conversation. We have a very complicated system, and it goes back to the fact that we are a local control state, and we allow our local jurisdictions to have their own and collect their own sales and use tax. Um, so there's always attempts to make that more uniform across the state. And then um, change to sales tax destination sourcing rules. Uh, there's going to be legislation to extend the small retailer exception from the destination-based sales and use tax rules. They're going to extend that to October of 22. Uh, that stems from a federal lawsuit that was um, came down a few years ago regarding internet sales. Mm -hmm. And it's and small businesses struggle with being able to apply the correct sales tax based on the destination that it's going to, that that product is going to be used in. And so this is an effort to try to provide some relief to the smallest of our businesses to, uh, before they're going to have to start collecting sales tax based on that system. So. What else? Anything else? You know, I, you know, I think we're going to continue to see, more changes and more efforts to try to lower healthcare costs. Although I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Right. Uh, if it's targeted at a cost, reducing costs of drugs, um, helping our rural hospitals stay solvent and stay um, active in their local communities is always a concern. So I think we're going to see some healthcare debates as well. Right. I don't know that it's going to be as volatile over the, as it was the last couple of years, but you know, those, those issues are hard and it, and they take a lot of, it's going to take a lot of focus to, to fix them in the right way. Okay. Uh, before we go, we just have a few more minutes with you. Um, let's talk about our ag and food producers in the state. Sure. Um, what's going to be happening with them. And there was a lot of hullabaloo last year, um, as on all of the fronts, and we worked pretty closely with you um, on on some of those things. What are we? What's the forecast on that? 
Yeah, last year they passed an extensive update on our agricultural employment laws. Uh, the bill that passed allows for farm workers to unionize. It increased uh, the minimum wage for farm workers, it provided for overtime. It did a lot of things. It was a very expansive piece of the legislation. And the Department of Labor has been working on two different rulemakings this, this uh, fall to implement portions of that bill. The first one dealt with um, increasing of the minimum wage. And um, so that passed in mid-October, I think. And now uh, farm workers will be guaranteed a minimum wage starting um, in the next, this next year. Um, we also have the second rulemaking dealt with overtime. And that was a very hard conversation. What they ended up coming out with was a, uh, an approach to roll it out over a few years to allow for farm workers to start being able to be eligible for overtime, but it's capped at a certain number of hours. It's not going to be that 40 hours a week that other industries have. And that's not uncommon. We see that in the ski industry, for example. Um, but that was an extensive rulemaking that took a lot of effort and it's going to roll out those, the implications, implementation of that is going to roll out over the next two to three years. So on the labor front, we think it's fairly quiet this year. We do anticipate that there's going to be an animal welfare bill. However, if you guys remember, there was the pause initiative that was introduced or was proposed for the ballot a couple of years ago. It was a very far reaching animal welfare bill that would have largely put livestock production out of business in Colorado. It also had very drastic implications to veterinary practice for right. both livestock and pet animals. I mean, it was devastating for animal welfare. That ultimately got thrown out by the Supreme Court, but there is a talk about possibly running a bill to help prevent another pause initiative from being introduced. I have my doubts that 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 can actually be done because you can't prevent somebody from putting something on the ballot. You yeah. can just put things, you can just encourage them to not do it. Right. Um, but we are looking at um, a possible animal welfare bill to up to, to close or to update animal welfare laws, especially as they pertain to livestock. We don't have any specific details yet. So it's kind of hard to prognosticate what could be coming, right. but um we do anticipate that that could be a very difficult conversation depending on how broad it is or what they actually end up focusing on. There's also going to be a bill introduced to uh, prevent or to prohibit big cat hunting. So think mountain lions, lynx, and bobcats. They're going to try to uh, pass a prohibition on the hunting of those three feline species. Mm -hmm. And then there is a proposal um, along the lines of wildlife to try to increase funding for uh, wildlife corridor uh, upgrades and those overpasses. They've put a couple up into northwestern Colorado. They've done a study to see how effective they are. And, and the study has shown that they are very highly effective in reducing vehicle collisions with wildlife. So they're trying to find additional money to go forward to build more of those around the state. So that's a positive thing. Um, 
And as for other ag-related issues, you know, I think there's conversations about trying to strengthen the right to farm law. We're looking, obviously, water is always a big deal for agriculture, um, making sure that we are, are able to use our irrigation water um, the way we need to and have enough of it is always a big deal. So we'll be actively engaged in all of those water issues that we spoke about earlier. And yeah, I'm sure there's going to be a lot that I'm not even aware of yet, but I'm sure it'll be exciting. There will be. I have a quick question. I just want to circle back really quick on the animal welfare. Is there, um, is this a big problem in Colorado? Is this something that we've seen a whole lot of violations of the laws that are already in place? That is an excellent question. And what we are finding when we talk to local law enforcement or district attorneys, there has not been a significant problem of livestock being um, inhumanely raised or um, in, in animal welfare violations, especially in the livestock world. So we're not sure that there is a problem that needs to be addressed there. There are some Laws. There's a law regarding uh, mental health evaluation in, in cases where a person is convicted of animal welfare abuse, animal abuse. Um, it's kind of unclear. Uh, the statute needs to be clarified whether or not that also pertains to a rancher if they get convicted of, uh, of abuse of livestock whether or not the judge has the ability to require a mental health evaluation. So we're looking at that because obviously that is uh, not what the intent of that, that law was. And I think it was an accident the way they ended up writing it, that then ended up happening. So that might be an area where we can find compromise on, on trying to make sure that uh, mental health is considered in those very extreme cases. Um, But other than that, we don't know of a lot of, of issues when it comes to livestock, animal abuse, not being able to address those when they come up. So I guess the hope for this, um, this legislative session, you and I talked about this the other day, is that, um, that we really focus on the problems that need to be solved rather than making up legislation to solve a problem that doesn't really need anything addressed, anything. But you covered the high points. I mean, it's really... Uh, this this session needs to be about um, the necessities, food, water, energy, housing, um, and then, of course, the budget. That's Those are the big things. Um, and I've, you've got a question, um, intent, I think. And, and I'll say it, um, I'm going to co- be questioning personally the intent of legislators who are talking about things beyond that or besides that this this next year. Yeah, we still have a long ways to go. COVID is still a, a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of job implications to that. There's healthcare implications to that. And from those two areas, then you find yourself into issues for housing mm-hmm. and all sorts of things and, and how it's impacting our kids, being able to be stay in person, school. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot, that's really important that we need to really focus on. Right. And I really hope that the legislature really does focus on those issues to help the state. We, we are bouncing back fairly strong, but we still have a long ways to go. And I don't want to lose, keep our, let's keep our eye on the ball Absolutely. and make sure that when this starts to actually not be such a big thing, that we are ahead of the game and we're better off than we were pre-pandemic. And there's no reason we can't be. 
Um, anything else? No, that's uh that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> and that's just like a fraction of what we're going to see in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so. it's going to be, but it's, I think you, you put the, all the, you know, keeping our eye on the ball, you laid it out beautifully, Garen. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show today. We're going to, um, we're going to be coming back and talking to you um, throughout the session, I think, because there's just going to be so much and it moves so quickly. So um, for those of you who are listening and don't know, there's usually about 700 bills that are introduced in 120 days. And so it moves really, really fast. And there's a whole lot to wade through. And it's folks like Garen and a lot of our friends up there who are uh, work really hard with the legislators to come up with a compromise that works for everybody. They're really the ambassadors of the stakeholder process. And so um, all of our lobbyists, that's why I say it's different than um, what somebody might think of as a lobbyist in Colorado. You guys really are the, the, um, the keepers of the stakeholder process. And we really appreciate that you do that and all that you do. So Garen, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, if you have not already gotten your invitation to the, uh, um, Voices of Rural Colorado that's coming up in a couple weeks, uh, let us know. That's really an important event. It's the one event every year that we get together with Club 20 and Pro 15, and we go to the Capitol and we make our rural voices collectively heard. And it's your opportunity to connect with some of the top decision makers. So, uh, and it's an it's an environment that everybody wants to be there because they do actually want to hear from you. So, we hope that you can join us for that. And thanks again, Garen, for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, we'll talk soon. All right. Well, there's another show. There's another and show. And if you have any questions or concerns or comments, email us at show at action22.org. Be sure to visit our website. If you're not a member of Action 22, you need to be. Yes. And that's just action22.org. Go on there. Has all of our information. And thank you. Thanks. All right. We'll see you guys next week. All right. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.